You're very welcome back to Tip Today. Um, uh, Tom was on to us from Dundrum and he has a gag for us today. He says, a man attending his doctor regularly with blood pressure issues, Fran. Doctor eventually asked him if there was a history of blood pressure in his family. The patient told him he figured it was from his wife's side. The doctor said it couldn't be so. The patient said, try living with my mother-in-law for a week. Boom, There you go. That's in from Tom in Dundrum to cheer us up um, uh, this morning. 1800 Now, for this week's Walks and Talks, uh, John G and Ali are in Aherlow with a very special guest. OK, John, where are we this week? Well, this week, time I know where we are, definitely. We're in the Glen of Aherlow. And you must think a beautiful autumnal day. Isn't Glen of Aherlow on a day like that isn't the nearest thing you can get to heaven? And that's a mention, that's probably an introduction to our next guest anyway. He'll probably get <laughs> us there as well. So uh, it's fantastic here. It's beautiful. And, uh, you know... E- you know, you, I'm sure you think this must be the greatest job in the world when you're sent out on days like this to come to places like this and not be in an office. But where we are is we're at the site of Ballinacorty House. And Ballinacorty House was, firstly, it was the Dawson family and they were Cromwellian planters who, you know, would have uh, got or taken the land or whatever, but certainly wouldn't have paid for it. And they would have been adventurous. That was the only way Cromwell could pay them was to actually... Uh, give them land. So they came here and then a lot of them, when they wouldn't have a male issue, the name would tend to change and so you got a, the uh, Massey-Dawson family and eventually you had the Massey-Dawson-Saunders family. Now, the, here then, there was tremendous, it was a really turbulent time during this, the, civil, the War of Independence and the Civil War. It's fair to say, I think, that the Glen was a hotbed of republicanism and during that period, then, uh, during the Civil War, the Republican forces, the anti-treaty forces, withdrew out here. They were driven out of Tip Town, and then, not to allow, or that's what they said anyway, not to allow the pro-treaty forces to get uh, take by the Courtney House. They burned it down. But Massey Dawson Saunders had long ago fled before that because there had been an assault on his life. But what's interesting is this. 19, this period was a time of of huge ferment across Europe and communism had just taken over in Russia and there was tremendous fear among some and tremendous hope among others that it would spread worldwide because there was no doubt that workers were really oppressed. But, down, but then what happened down here then was there was a run of radicalism right through Limerick in 1919, 1920, 1921 and they would take over businesses and they would run up a red flag and say we are taking this on behalf of the workers and we're going to run it. Now that was easier said than done and uh, generally it didn't continue but in 1922 here the workers went in and they took over Cleves Creamery and they took over the Massey Dawson sawmills and said we're going to run these as workers republics. Now That's incredible. Isn't it incredible? I mean you think you're a red flag down, down here. It's absolutely incredible that they would have taken it over in that way. So then the problem was, though, that what you're speaking about here is one thing, the 
pro-treaty and anti-treaty forces might have hated each other, but they had one thing in common. They were conservative. They were basically from a Catholic landed background, and they were Catholics, and they went back to, whatever tips with the church, but they went back to being Catholics afterwards. They had no use for the development of communism here. This was just a radical group who would have been following people like James Connolly. They had no use for that whatsoever, and so they were politely told this was not a good idea, and that was the end of the of communism in the Glen. But you see, so peaceful. I'd, I'd say it only lasted maybe a couple of weeks at the very most. But there was over in Knocklong Creamery, they put up a big sign outside it, took over Cleves Creamery and put up a big sign: "We produce butter, not profits." Wow! And there you are. So look, we'll move on now further up the Glen, where we'll get a, a brilliant view of the mountains, and then I think we have a fantastic guests to, uh, to, to introduce you to. I think it won't be stuck for words. Oh, fantastic. Let's go ahead. Okay, John, a beautiful walk up and it brings us to uh, a scene and a vista I think that'll be familiar to many in the county and that's here at Arlow House. Yeah, and not all hill walkers either. People who have been here for weddings and other family celebrations and of course the uh, Arlow House here is a wonderful facility here in the Glen and I suppose it keeps the Glen alive. But actually what it was, was we mentioned the Massey Dawson's earlier on and they, uh, their house was burned, we mentioned that at Balnacorti, but they had a hunting lodge up here and with some of the money they got from the state as compensation for the damage they extended this and they lived then I think here up into the 1940s then when a German family took it over and then after that I understand in the, in the 1970s it became a hotel. In fact I was at a wedding here I remember I'm showing my age now in 1978 and it was beautiful then and it's beautiful now. And it's still going and it's great to see because we know in the hospitality industry the difficulties that many businesses face. So to have uh, a place like this in such a rural location that's still thriving and still attracting visitors all the time is great to see. It's fantastic. I mean, when we go out for a walk, it's just so fantastic to pop in here as well as that. And it's great to keep it going because, you know, when you're out here, it's it's a highly seasonal business. So you have to work hard to keep it going in the winter as well as that. But of course, the surroundings are absolutely to die for around here. And what we're going to do now is we're going to walk up and there's a beautiful forest here. And that's one of the things the Massey Dawson's and others left behind they left these beautiful natural woodlands and I looked at the maps here going back a hundred years ago and there were so much woodlands here, in fact it was actually serving the sawmills which ultimately where the Soviets uh, started down there where they took over the sawmills we're going to walk up to that and the local community have lovingly put walks in there and maintained the whole area, it's going to be a lovely walk and then we're going to go up to that wonderful viewing pine, Christ the King statue, and we have a great guest to meet there. Oh, I look forward to it. Let's go. Now. John, I have to say, I think out of all the walks and talks we've done this season, we've probably got the best weather for this one, and thank <laughs> <Absolutely>. God. Absolutely. <laughs> After being absolutely soaked <laughs> and rained on and blown away and everything else, at last fortune has smiled on us. And was, wasn't I right? Isn't that forest that's maintained by the local community? Isn't it, wasn't it a fantastic Beautiful. walk? And the leaves just slowly starting to turn now, the colours coming in on And the them. popularity shows because the car park here of a, a Tuesday morning, is it's fairly busy here. It 
isn't that absolutely a people yeah. people come out to the Glen and why wouldn't they a magical view and I'm just looking up there then and remember in the Cumberlands we talked about all the old Irish names yeah well if you look up there Temple Hill so that would be now I don't know where it was maybe our guest will tell us Knock Chumple it would be called that would be the the mountain of the the church right then you'd move over you have the the highest one there Lyra Gopal the confluence of the horse again maybe our guests will be able to tell us something on that uh, Corrigabina again this is the great thing I think about Irish if you take something uh, like Manchester or Birmingham the name tells you nothing about the place. Mm. All of these tell you something about the place. Corrig Abina, the rock near the, the peak. Cush Abina, the, uh, the peak that is beside the, 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 the peak, if you get what I'm saying. Then you come over here, obviously Galti Moor, that is the, the high Galti, Galti Beg, the little Galti, and then Cush is near the two of them, so it's beside it. Below it, Glen Cushabina, which tells us this is the Glen beside the peak. And then we go over Green Anne, probably the sunny place. And I, I'd imagine one thing, though, is that maybe in the evenings, your side of the Galtis My gets side, the sun. Yeah. And then Storaki in the little stack. But I'm delighted now we've come along here, and our guest has just come along here with us, and it's fantastic. And I'll have to tell you a little story, you see. You're a bit into... Uh, uh, the Imaniacht, but I'd say around the year you were born, right? Galway got to an All Ireland final, and there was a great story about it because there was a father Iggy on the team, right? right. And priests up to that weren't allowed hurl, but now they were. Things were relaxing, so Father Iggy then was in my mind, and yeah, he was there. Then he got injured, and that. Then I heard after a while, you know, a few pronouncements from Father Iggy. Say, God, he's gone a bit radical. And the next thing, he was <laughs> above in Drogheda, you know, this kind of thing, and he's getting even more radical. And then suddenly I realised, no. Would you believe there are actually two Father Iggy's around the place? And it's not the Father Iggy Clark, it's the other Father Iggy who's here. But I didn't know, I was listening to him then on, on the radio sometimes. Then I came up here and I met Michael Maroney. And he told me that Father Iggy, he says, our Father Iggy, he says, he came here from the Glen. And I said, he was kind of radical. I said, and he, I said uh, you know, what's the background here? He says, I, uh, he said, well, they were involved in, in the struggle. I said, well, they're a Republican family. He said, extremely. So there's radicalism coming through here. So I'm delighted to have along here, not Father Iggy Clark, but Father Iggy O'Donovan. And what I'd like to do now is we're looking down on the Glen. Will you point out where you came from? Where we're standing here at the Christ the King Monument, which your listeners will probably be familiar with, about looking straight across at Galtie Moor, about two miles from where we stand as the crow flies is where I was born and brought up in a little spot called Monabula. Oh, beautiful. Yes. What are your memories of growing up there then, Father Iggy? Ironically, one of the things we had going to school, because we walked three miles to Lisbonan, is that where we lived up in Monabula, at the foot of the Galtis, it was sort of the back of beyonds, if you like, where yeah. our father kept sheep and that, but it was up in the mountains and almost primitive, almost, you might think. So, but... Uh, Looking back on it, now I look on it as idyllic. It wasn't so idyllic then, nor was the primary school for that matter. Tell me then, we're used to talking to you on the show. We love having you on the show, of course. You're a regular guest on it uh, for your thoughts on, on theology and philosophy and religion. But like John said, we never really, you never give us any hint of your kind of, your, your interest in Irish history and republicanism. Tell us about where that inspiration came from or where that love comes from and how your family was so entrenched in it. Growing up in the Glen, I would have heard 
many of the old stories like them. The Glen was, if you like, saturated in the old story of the War of Independence yeah. and uh, probably even more so the Civil War, which was even more tragic in the Glen than in many places, in that the actual physical losses of some great Republicans was much higher in the Civil War than it had been in the Black and Tan War, another story. But I would have heard of all of that. Later, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to UCD where I specialised in history and... Uh, as a member of the church, which I was, the Augustinian order, I um, was teaching history for many years. And so my, my training in, in initially was as a historian, more than a theologian, and some would say uh, you should have stuck with the history. <laughs> yeah, can, can I pop in here, though? You actually, you know, I, you always think of people going into the church and they're almost grabbed out of school and they have no other experience. You went to UCD, you studied history. UCD, I would say, in the 70s was a hot bar bed of liberalism. And yet I would say then, in the late 70s, I understand, you went into the seminary and the church was hardly what you call, you, I think, have progressive views. The church hardly had progressive views then. I'm wondering, like, you were the last person I expect to go in. What attracted you to the church? I would say initially it was the Augustinian order. When I met them in, the, in Dungarvan, where yeah. I was in school, and uh, above all, what attracted me was the, the missionary effort. In those days, the missioners, there was a great sense of pride in Ireland in our missioners in those days. Young people would probably not know what I'm talking about now, but they were seen as, um, if you like, they were the um, special forces on the frontier. Yeah. They, they were. And the idea was to go and work in, go to join the church, go and work in Africa and all of this, this sense of adventure. As it turned out, I joined the Augustinians, was trained as a historian and so forth, and they put me teaching history where, and I was very happy doing it. So um, apart from some years in Rome and places like that, most of my time has been in Ireland, mainly in Drogheda and New Ross, teaching history. And uh, I was very fortunate to have been sent to UCD. Now, this sounds like name dropping, name dropping, but two of the guys who were in my class, one of them would be better known as a writer now, uh, Roddy Doyle. Really? And the other better known as a journalist, Fintan O'Toole. Wow. And neither of them corrupted with piety, I can assure you. <laughs> but it was with people. You probably didn't corrupt them with piety <laughs> either at yeah. that stage. But um, I was in groups like the Irish, Irish Council for Civil Liberties and groups like that, Amnesty International. I was a member of, of course, the History Society and so forth. So I was very exposed, if you like, to life as life is lived. And uh, one of the things I've always taught that the church needs to do is to be somehow be able to be identified and adapt itself to modernity. Mm. And it's a tough battle because <laughs> by our very nature, churchmen are conser and women are conservative. But um, the Augustinians have been pretty tolerant of me and I'm still here, pretty much having done a lot of my own thing. Yeah. And um, so uh, at the moment then I've, I'm back for the first time in 40 years or so, back in my own county, and uh, I'm now working out a feathered over at the foot of Schlieven Naman. Yeah. We're glad to have you back in the home soil, all yeah. right. When it comes to your interest in Irish history then, because I think what we've discovered through the Walks and Talks series is there are so many local stories that 
had we not discovered them as part of walks and talks, they could be forgotten in history. Would you have those kind of fears as well, that those small stories that have huge significance in the whole context of Irish history, that a lot of them have been forgotten? Well, one of the things that gives me great hope at the moment is that this is the study of local history. It's happening, historical societies and so forth have springing up everywhere. And one of the great things about the internet which may have its drawbacks, but one of the great things about it is that the amount of information that is now available. And you take something like the um, military archives mm. and, say, the um, old IRA pensions and the applications for the old IRA pensions and the stories that fellows submitted about their adventures or alleged adventures tells us an awful lot and it has opened up the whole thing of local history in a way that could never have happened before. Yeah. And besides... All history in some ways is local. Yeah. We're all the centre of our own universe. And um, we can talk forever about um, Iraq or Ukraine or whatever. But really, it's the, for me, it was the troubles in the Glen that are the local real history. Because John has often said that before as well, that there was this fear of bringing it all up. And it, it's only in the last few years that people have had either the bravery or the ability to be able to talk about some of those stories. Is that something you would agree with? Absolutely. You see, I think anybody of a younger generation now, I think, would find it almost difficult to uh, conceive of the atmosphere, say, created by the Irish Civil War, which lasted only 10 months. 10 months. But its fallout lasted almost 100 years. Yeah. Certainly 50, 50 years ago, uh, when we were doing the, cent the, the 50th anniversary, the centenary we're doing now, you think of it that Mr. De Valera was still president and uh, many of his colleagues in that were still around, like Frank Aiken and others, and they were civil war names. And while for some people, um, Dave could have been the fourth member of the Trinity, giving the Sacred Heart a run for his money, for others, he was the devil incarnate, the worst possible traitor, as some would have seen him. Yeah. And um, th that feeling was there also, the Civil War, of course, there were stories about who collaborated, who didn't. Who, the word informer, my God, that had a connotation that goes beyond being a, a, a Nazi or a fascist or anything else, or a black and tan, an informer. And there were still say, families very much around who, who for rightly or wrongly, his names were associated with one adventure, who told on Dan Breen, who informed, who did this. That was still very much alive. And um, so that now has become more impersonal and I think maybe the younger people of today, to use that line from one of the old songs, they ask, what are they marching for? Yeah. It has moved on so much. But you think that there was too much deference to the clergy when you were growing up in Ireland, to the detriment of the church? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we had a hell of a lot of religion and a hell of a lot of Catholicism and probably a fairly low level of Christianity because it was an oppressive, cruel society. I think of looking back on it now, we say the whole area of censorship, where almost anything worth reading was banned. Somebody once put it that the list of banned books up until the 1960s was almost an index to the world's great literature. Yeah. You know, and uh, then, of course, anything to do that might have hinted that sexuality existed. I'm thinking now of even Walter Macken. I think of Brendan Behan. I think of uh, Frank O'Connor. These are names, all of whom fell foul of the censor. I mean, it was just incredible. It, it was a narrow-minded, very incestuous society, very closed, very cruel in many ways. And then at the same time, it had its dark side. And uh, we, 
we know only too well about that, that whereas morality was held up above all sexual morality. And then we discover later on, if you like, that the accountant was very much caught with his hand in the till. Yeah. And that's actually still the role you chose for yourself. But obviously you tried to bring about change in it. But you have said that, I once, I think, now correct me if I'm wrong, that the institutional church is, has no future. Uh, and it has to radically alter itself. The, am I correct or am I misquoting? The institutional church, as we knew it in the 50s and 60s and even later, is all but gone. And you only have to glance at a, a church on a Sunday morning where you look again if you see natural dark hair anywhere. And it's, that is the fact. Nevertheless, at the same time, you look at other events such as we take um, funerals, bereavements. I think of the tragic incidents in Tipperary recently in Clonmel and in Cashel. We're only too well aware of that awful tragedies on the road. And where did the people look more than anywhere else? To their church. So it shows that it can have a positive role but in many ways we had a great brand in many ways we destroyed it because everything was was reduced if you don't down to one sin a very very narrow sexual morality and almost nothing else and the day young people lost that sense of guilt and fear was the day that institution began to fold up and in many ways i'm glad of it can I finish by asking you something that's quite topical, particularly today, and that is the issue of the wolf tones and the furore around their popularity. Some are saying their recent popularity, but I think it's always been there. A lot of people saying that it's a show that young people are now moving more towards nationalism. Other people are saying it's it's a kind of anarchic um, view that young people are taking. What's your view on it? I suppose when you take the songs by the wolf tones, like the rifles of the IRA or whatever it might be, we don't take them as divine gospel. They're works of art. They're songs. As poems, probably very poor. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, when I stand here and look across at the Galtys and I think of the, the Galty mountain boy, you know, which from the point of view of history is outrageous. There's some of the stuff in it and about crossing the Wicklow Mountains and all of that, yeah. which very few local IRA men from Tip did. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's rousing stuff. And if, if we enjoy it as... Um, art, as poetry, as song but for God's sake don't take it as, um, we wouldn't take the story of Jack and the Beanstalk as literal history, don't take that as literal history, enjoy it as a good story and a good sing song John, it's uh, kind of sad to, to say that we're winding down in our walks and talks for uh, this year uh, we only have about two episodes I think left but we had to come to Arlo, didn't we? We did, we absolutely did. But wasn't it a wonderful trip? Firstly, for the beauty of the area, which I never tire of. But as well as that, Father Iggy, wasn't he a breath of fresh air? I remember one time with another clergyman who probably wasn't quite as radical as Father Iggy, but was a bit radical, and he expressed some radical views, and he says, what do you think of that? And I said, what I think of that is you'll never be a bishop. And I think the problem with the church and everything else is if we had more people like Father Iggy who taught like he does, if we had those in the hierarchy, then there would be a much stronger future. But that is, it's the, still, I think, the conservative people come out, come out at the front and the foot soldiers who are out there and understand it all. I think Father Iggy has been wonderful because not only does he talk very coherently about the church, but he understands the historical background and he understands people as well as that and that things 
aren't black and white in life. And, you know, when I was growing up, it was always black and white. There was always a sin and you go to hell. Things aren't black and white. And I just love that about Father Ye. And that's John Diodoir speaking to Ali there and uh, their special guest on this week's uh, walk, uh, Walks and Talks, uh, Father Iggy O'Donovan there as well. Uh, listen, Ron, taking a little bit of an issue with uh, Thomas Conway, Thomas who does our uh, global politics slot, uh, saying if the US has invasion troops in Syria at the moment, does your analyst believe that the athletes should com- compete under a neutral flag? And that's making reference to uh, Thomas's story there about um, um, in, in France for the Olympics that the Russians, the Russian athletes won't be able to uh, fly the Russian flag. And I suppose the difference, let me be devil's advocate on this, and I suppose the difference is um, that uh, the American troops would see themselves in Syria as curbing uh, terrorism, I suppose, in their fight against um, ISIS or Islamic State or whatever, but maybe maybe you still disagree with us on that, but isn't that the nature of discussion and one thing and another? We'll take a break. We'll be right back in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery's Garage